Welcome to PQ Doc on Call, a podcast dedicated to current and aspiring intensivists. I'm Pradeep Kumar, coming to you from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Emory University School of Medicine. And I'm Rahul Demania from Cleveland Clinic Children's Hospital. And we are two pediatric ICU physicians passionate about all things med ed in the PICU. PICU Doc on Call focuses on interesting PICU cases and management in the acute care pediatric setting. So let's get into our episode. Welcome to our episode of a four-year-old girl with chief complaint of headache and vomiting. Here's the case presented by Dr. Rahul Dimania. A four-year-old presents to the PICU with headaches, vomiting, and abnormal CT scan findings. The patient presented to the emergency room with a history of abdominal pain that lasted five days with associated non-bloody non-bilious emesis. Her initial CBC and UA were normal. The patient was given some pain meds and IV fluids, and further history revealed that the patient had been having severe headaches for the last five days and emesis secondary to the headaches. There was no history of trauma or seizures, no history of fever or diarrhea, no toxic ingestions or recent travel, no exposures to any sick contacts. Her initial COVID test was negative. No family history of migraines were noted, and her immunizations were up to date. She also had a normal set of electrolytes along with a normal UA and CBC. A CT scan of her head revealed a right frontal parietal mass with moderate surrounding edema with a 6 millimeter leftward midline shift, diffuse sulcal narrowing, and right cisternal narrowing. Imaging of the abdomen was unremarkable, and a follow-up MRI of the brain was done. The brain MRI revealed a right parietal diffusion-restricting lesion most compatible with an abscess. There was also some moderate vasogenic edema surrounding the sinitis, and given her abdominal pain, the patient did undergo a full GI workup, which included a abdominal KUB and CT scan of the abdomen and pelvis, and both of these studies were negative. In the emergency department, her vitals were normal and patient was afebrile. On her physical exam, the patient appeared sleepy, but woke up and answered questions appropriately. There were no focal deficits on neurological exam. She had normal tone and strength as well as normal pupillary exam. The rest of her exam was completely normal, and she now is transferred to the PICU for serial neurological exams. To summarize key elements from this case, this patient has a headache with altered mental status, no focal deficits, vomiting, surprisingly no fever, and imaging that shows right frontoparietal mass, all of which bring up the concern for a potential brain abscess. This episode will be organized in the following manner. We'll talk about the epidemiology and pathogenesis of brain abscesses. We'll pivot and talk about diagnosis, and we'll conclude the episode speaking about management of brain abscess. Rahul, can you inform our listeners about the epidemiology of brain abscesses in children? Now, only about 25% of brain abscesses occur in children. The incidence in developed countries is 1% to 2%, while in developing countries, it's about 8%. Peak incidence in children is seen between the ages of 4 and 7, and it's actually more common in males. Brain abscess in the neonatal age group is rare, but is associated with higher risk of complications as well as mortality. Now, your risk factors for a brain abscess include otologic infections, such as infections of the ear, sinus, and dental infections, 
Surprisingly, congenital heart disease, in fact, 30% of patients with brain abscesses have an underlying heart defect with intracardiac or intrapulmonary shunting. Immunodeficiencies, such as those seen in solid organ transplantation, HIV, etc. Patients who have acquired immunodeficiencies, such as with prolonged steroid use. Diabetes, neurosurgical procedures, as well as trauma. Other rare causes can be airway foreign bodies or brain foreign bodies, congenital dermal sinuses, and esophageal procedures such as recurrent dilations. A brain abscess typically begins with the localized area of cerebritis, which evolves through various stages, typically over two weeks, to develop into an encapsulated collection of purulent material with peripheral gliosis or fibrosis. Over half of the spread of infection is due to contiguous infections, such as otitis, sinusitis, or mastoiditis, as well as from head trauma or neurosurgical procedures. 30 to 40% of brain abscesses is spread via hematogenous routes, such as from endocarditis, pulmonary infections, or dental abscesses. To summarize, 90% of brain abscesses in children are supratentorial. Mastoiditis, spinoidal sinusitis, otitis media results in brain abscess in the temporal lobe or cerebellum. Frontal lobe brain abscess are due to frontal or ethmoid sinusitis or dental infections. Brain abscess from hematogenous spread result in multiple abscesses and typically follow the distribution of middle cerebral artery, including the parietal and occipital lobes. So Rahul, what are some of the common pathogens seen in brain abscess? A recent meta-analysis reported the most common organisms in children with brain abscesses. These include streptococcus species seen in about 35% of children who have brain abscesses, staphylococcal species seen in about 20%, and gram-negative enteric bacteria seen in about 15%. Certain organisms, such as E. coli or proteus species, are seen in the neonatal population. Brain abscesses from opportunistic microorganisms are usually multiple. They occur in HIV-positive children with a low CD4 count. The most common pathogens are toxoplasma, nocardia, and mycobacterium species. Fungal abscesses, mainly Aspergillus or Candida, typically affect solid organ transplant recipients or children treated for leukemia. So to summarize, altered mental status in a patient who is immunocompromised Think of opportunistic infections. Remember, these patients can present even without a fever. Rahul, what are some of the typical clinical features seen in a patient with a brain abscess? Clinical features would actually depend on site, size, involvement of surrounding area, and patient immune status. Fever with headaches are typical. Vomiting is usually associated with headaches, and neurological manifestations could be a wide spectrum. You could have seizures, hemiplasia, cranial nerve palsies, altered levels of consciousness ranging from drowsiness, such as that seen in our case, to coma. Neonates can have bulging fontanelle and even increased head circumference. Now, a classic triad has been reported that the triad of brain abscesses could be fever, headache, neurological deficits. This is actually seen in about one third of patients. Frontal abscesses may remain asymptomatic, especially if they are small. POTS puffy tumor, also called POTS edematous tumor, 
is a subperiosteal abscess of the frontal bone associated with osteomyelitis of the frontal bone of the skull. This can give rise to brain abscesses as well. To conclude, meningeal signs are seen in about one-fourth of patients with brain abscesses. So just a big take-home point, because we can see this diagnosis clinically, POTS puffy tumor is an osteomyelitis of the frontal bone with associated subperiosteal abscess on imaging. This can actually cause a pretty pronounced swelling and edema over the forehead and scalp on clinical exam. And remember, it can be a complication from any sort of frontal trauma or sinusitis. Now, Pradeep, let's go ahead and highlight the diagnostic approach to a brain abscess. Can you give us some clinical pearls here? Absolutely. So, Rahul, I would start with a CBC with a differential, blood cultures, uh, both aerobic, anaerobic, ESR, CRP, and a complete metabolic panel. Such tests are abnormal only in about 20% of pediatric patients with a brain abscess. After acquisition of either a CT or an MRI, a lumbar puncture can be attempted. Lumbar puncture would be contraindicated if there is a non-communicating obstructive hydrocephalus and brain shift. CSF fluid analysis obtained from the LP can help with obtaining gram stain and cultures and would be useful to find an organism and tailor therapy. Although CSF studies can be normal in 30% of patients with a brain abscess, the sudden worsening of a pre-existing headache may indicate rupture of the brain abscess into the ventricular space or impending herniation from the lesion's mass effect. Significant alteration in mental status is an ominous clinical finding. Abscesses located within the brainstem typically present with fever, headaches, hemiparesis, and focal cranial nerve findings involving cranial nerves 3, 6, and 7. Now, MRI is considered to be the gold standard. It has the low radiation risk, better resolution, and lower toxicity of contrast compared to CT. However, MR imaging may require sedation and take longer time compared to the CT scan, which is readily available and may not require sedation due to the speed of image acquisition and can be performed quickly prior to an LP. MR imaging has higher sensitivity and specificity in the differential diagnosis with cystic or neoplastic lesions. An MR study for bacterial brain abscess will show a necrotic center with a low signal at the diffusion-weighted MR imaging and a T2 hypo-intensity with enhancement for the peripheral capsule. Fungal abscesses show a hypo-intense center in the T2-weighted image with a variable expression in diffusion-weighted MR. CT may reveal a mass lesion, but MRI will help confirm diagnosis, which characterizes the brain abscesses better. Pass obtained from the aspiration or biopsy in the operating room can be used for culture. Now, culture should be sent for both aerobic and anaerobic bacteria, as well as fungi, protozoa, and mycobacterium. Gram stain, as well as special stains for fungi, mycobacterium, nocardia, and polymerase chain reaction should be performed on blood, CSF, and pus of the cerebral abscess. It is best to involve ID colleagues in a patient with brain abscess to guide diagnostic studies as well as therapies. 
The culture positivity of blood and CSF samples is low, about 20 to 28% in most cases. The rate of microorganism isolation from abscess samples is about 60 to 80%, with polymicrobial involvement, which is seen in about 20 to 30% of the cases. Other studies can be obtained on a case-by-case basis, depending on primary focus, and that would include echocardiogram, a chest x-ray, abdominal ultrasound or CT, and even bone imaging. Besides infectious disease and neurosurgical experts, consults with cardiology, hematology, dental colleagues, and ENT experts may be required. Thanks so much, Pradeep, for going through the diagnostic approach. To summarize, an approach to a brain abscess is a multidisciplinary effort. It involves imaging, isolation of the lesion, as well as fluid and tissue diagnoses. Diagnostics such as an echo may reveal a primary source. This, as I mentioned, is a coordinated effort with infectious disease, neurosurgery, as well as even neurology. These patients may also require prophylactic anti-epileptics around the time of biopsy. So Rahul, if a history, physical, and diagnostic investigations lead us to the diagnosis of brain abscess, what would be a general management framework for these patients in the PICU? Along with establishing a multidisciplinary team, we should also deliver basic PICU care, close attention to airway patency, adequacy of oxygenation and ventilation, as well as stability of hemodynamics should be the first-line approach in such patients admitted to the PICU. Good access for medication administration may include the need for a PIC line. Attention to neurological status by frequent physical exam, including attention to patients handling of oral secretions should be a priority. Continuous EEG may be required depending on size and involvement of the surrounding area. Long-term antibiotics are the mainstay of therapy. A combination of vancomycin plus ceftriaxone and metronidazole for four to six weeks if the patient undergoes surgical drainage is indicated. Longer antibiotics, such as a duration of eight weeks, is typically going to be administered for patients who do not undergo surgical drainage. Remember that on rounds, we should talk about PICC lines and stable central lines for long-term antibiotic therapy, as well as how to obtain imaging safely in these patients. Now, a non-operative approach can be considered in a patient who has multiple small abscesses or a single small abscess, typically less than two and a half centimeters. The non-surgical approach is considered in patients who have surgically inaccessible lesions, evidence of early cerebritis, or medical comorbidities that puts the patient at a high risk for surgery. Now, Pradeep, why don't we talk a little bit about the operative approach to a brain abscess? So Rahul, that's a great question. Operative approach involves aspiration, which is typically done with CT guidance, or excision. Aspiration results in removal of the infected nidus, which is quote-unquote source control, as well as provision of material for gram stain culture. Excision of the abscess cavity may be useful when it is located in a periventricular or posterior fossa distribution, is loculated, or contains a foreign body. Excision should also be considered for abscesses that enlarge after two weeks of antibiotic therapy or those which fail to shrink after three to four weeks of antibiotics. Primary excision may be the procedure of choice for lesions located in the cerebellum. 
Compared to aspiration, excision of brain abscess in non-vital areas of the brain had a lower rate of reoperation, a higher rate of post-operative abscess clearance, and better neurologic improvement after one month, although there was no difference in long-term neurologic outcomes or mortality. So Rahul, what are some of the prognostic features in brain abscess? A brain abscess from a contiguous focus of infection and those developing after a traumatic injury tend to have the best prognosis. Poor prognosis is associated with delayed diagnosis, immunocompromised status, and rupture of the abscess into the ventricular space. A poor prognosis is seen in patients who also have fungal complications related to the brain abscess and pretreatment neurologic compromise. Let's go ahead and summarize this episode. Remember that the classic triad for the diagnosis of a brain abscess includes headache, fever, neurological deficits, and this is seen in only one-third of patients with brain abscesses therefore have a high index of suspicion in patients who have risk factors such as immunosuppression or cyanotic heart disease. Early imaging with CT and MRI is necessary to diagnosis, as well as a multidisciplinary team approach. Antibiotic therapy should not be delayed. Triple therapy with vancomycin, ceftriaxone, and metronidazole is typically initiated at diagnosis. Excellent summary points, Rahul. So this concludes our episode on brain abscess. We hope you found value in our short case-based podcast. We welcome you to share your feedback, subscribe, and place a review on our podcast. Please visit our website, pqdoconcall.org, which showcases our episodes as well as our Doc on Call management cards. PQ Doc on Call is co-hosted by me, Pradeep Kamath, and Dr. Rahul Dimania. Stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you. Thank you.